Welcome to the Boomer Bar, the podcast where we talk about stories from the San Mateo County Bar Association. I'm your host, Deborah Kemper, and today we're talking to Stephen M. Wagstaff, District Attorney, and Shin Mi Chang, Assistant District Attorney. This is a special edition of the Boomer Bar, and we hope you enjoy it. Let's listen in. Uh, Deborah, let me start by saying thank you very much. We're, uh, we're honored to be able to speak today to the audience, and we appreciate the San Mateo County Bar Association being so kind as to give us this opportunity. We really are uh, excited to be able to talk today on this topic, and it, is, it really will be uh, interesting. Looking forward to um, telling you about ourselves and what we're doing, additionally, taking any questions that you might have. The, uh, I've asked uh, to join me today, Shinmi Chang. She's my assistant district attorney. She has been a prosecutor in this office for 22 years now. And uh, she heads up a division of my office that includes general felony, human trafficking, sexual assault, as well as she uh, is one of the advisors who keeps me going the right way as we proceed down the path. Now, our topic today is uh, not just the state of the DA. Some people have said, oh, are you going to be talking about murder cases you prosecute? Matters of that nature. And the answer is no, that's not the point. We're, this is being offered uh, to you by the Bar Association Diversity and Social Justice Committee. And that's the avenue we want to talk about related to the district attorney's office. As Deborah said, I've been with the district attorney's office. It's The actual number is 46 years. Joined it in 1977. And uh, during that time, I have seen remarkable change. When it came to what we're going to talk about today, back in 1977 and throughout the following, I would even use decades, um, the approach that we had when it came to race was that, you know what, we want to be colorblind. What we want to do is we don't want, we didn't keep uh, statistics on it. We had our entire approach was, you know what, let's do our job. And let's just do our job without, and I can't tell you the number of times I made decisions in cases, and I wouldn't have had the slightest notion what the uh, ethnicity or race of the individual would be. That was the philosophy of district attorney's offices throughout state of California, which is uh, trying to be like Lady Justice with the blindfold on. Now, of course, in over the course of the last dozen years, our world has changed, and it has particularly changed in the last few years. What has not changed is the core function of a district attorney's office. There is obviously discretion, but the areas that what DAs do, there are three areas that we predominantly are in as prosecuting attorneys. Number uh, one, of course, is our job is to review cases brought to us by law enforcement and determine whether or not the evidence is sufficient. If it is, our job is to hold people accountable. The second uh, role that we have is if we are able to hold people accountable within the law, uh, of course, and all the variations in the law today, then it's to make a recommendation to the court as to sentence. And it's very important for people to realize that. Too often I talk with citizens who think that not only do we prosecute, convict them in the uh, many of the cases, but additionally that we do the sentencing. And that is we never do sentencing. All we can do is make recommendations on that. And the final area that is the focus of this district attorney's office is serving victims. It's extraordinarily important to all of us here uh, to do that. The for San Mateo County, the Victim Services Division 
is within the district attorney's office. I have 20 men and women who all day, every day, are serving victims in every way that we can, and witnesses also, victims and witnesses. Those are our core functions. Now, there's discretion. Obviously, what we do as the district attorney's office gives a wide range of discretion. We have submitted to us every year, approximately, it'll vary from year to year, but somewhere between 18,000 to 20,000 cases. Generally, around 2,500 of those or so are felonies. The others are misdemeanors. And, and we review each one of those. We do not file all of those cases. As a matter of fact, um, our filing rate is about 85 to 87 percent of those cases. The remaining cases we uh, decline to prosecute. The reasons can vary from uh, the fact that uh, the evidence is insufficient, the number one reason, but there can be other things. A case like this doesn't belong in the system or it belongs to be uh, in some other form. It doesn't need to come in to criminal justice. And we make those decisions every day. When I say we, what I'm referring to are the prosecuting attorneys. In San Mateo County, we have 66 prosecuting attorneys. That includes myself uh, in that line and who make these decisions every day working the cases um, through the system. And of that 66, and that's important, while today, uh, you know, the uh, social justice, racial uh, diversity is a core part of what we're talking about. But it's important for me to say from our perspective, what we're looking at is well beyond that when it comes to diversity. And I know Shin Mi, who is the head of my equity and uh, social justice committee that we have in this office that she'll describe, uh, that's a big emphasis for us. For instance, we are very concerned. Well, obviously, uh, one that we probably um, attacked the earliest, and that was uh, gender. When I came into the office, I think out of 35, 38 uh, prosecuting attorneys, I think there were three women. Uh, today, there are in this uh, DA's office, we have 66 prosecuting attorneys. 42 of those are women. 24 of those are men. It's a two to one ratio. And uh, that has not been because we said we're going to go out and find women prosecutors. It's going to be we're going to find the best candidates for the job. So but that's important to us that we have the gender diversity. But it's also important for us and what we're doing with my staff, that we also have concerns for other areas, that we also are aware of the uh, need to have social justice and social fairness in things such as uh, disability, uh, people with disabilities, people who are. Um, and this applies both to victims, this applies to the people we're accusing of time, of crimes. It applies, we're also very concerned about, for instance, we had a uh, office-wide training uh, not too long ago on LGBTQ and being able to understand exactly how the world has evolved in that area, because we do not presume that as prosecuting attorneys that we have the knowledge. We go to outside agencies. It was the San Mateo County Pride Center that gave us the training on that to educate all of us. It was, it was really wonderful. I think it was two hours long and it was really outstanding training for us. And we're really trying to do that sort of a thing within the framework of what we are as prosecutors. And that is to play the role. We are not uh, defense attorneys. We don't play the role of a defense attorney. We certainly rely on the private defender program and retain counsel for that. We stay within our lane. That brings to one other point I want to uh, mention also before I get into the meat of the topic, and that is what I take as the role of the DA. The DA, we are not lawmakers. We are not the legislature. We are not the governor. They are the ones who enact the laws, 
sign into law, the governor signs into law, the laws that govern us. We have on a, we occasionally will have views that we express to our legislators on bills, but the reality is once the legislature and the governor enact a law, it's our job to enforce it. We are the enforcement arm. The attorney general on the statewide level, DA's office in the county level, our job is to enforce the laws they bring. And, and that's part of what we want to talk about today. There have been a great number of laws that have been passed starting in 2011 when the, when the whole social justice started. I know everybody feels 2020 with everything that occurred during that rather significant year in our history of this state and this country. But the reality is it goes back much further where there was an effort made to try and ensure that we have social and racial justice uh, in our criminal justice system. And that is something that as an office, we have tried to embrace, we've tried to train, and we've tried to make sure that we follow that as best we can. But again, I know there are some district attorneys around the state, a few, who've made choices on what they will do whether they will enforce, whether they will say, I will never file enhanced sentencing enhancement, things like that. That is contrary to my view. My view very simply is uh, every case on its face considered on the facts of the case and no broad sweeping that I will no longer prosecute X crime. I will no longer ever uh, seek anything. I will not make that. The example on the most serious of cases is capital punishment and the death penalty. People have asked me, would I declare, as uh, uh, some DA's offices have done, the one immediately to my south has done, that they will not seek the death penalty. I view that as, uh, from my perspective, that would be taking over the role of the legislature and the governor. And hence, I will not take those steps. It doesn't mean I will seek the death penalty. In my 13 years as the district attorney, I have not had a case where we have sought the death penalty. And But that doesn't mean philosophically I'm saying in every case that's the rule. Every case on its facts and its face. And that's how we approach these matters. And that brings us to now to get a little bit more into some of the uh, the core. I mentioned to you uh, what we're doing as a DA's office. Again, it is important to, that a DA's office, it's every government office. It's important for the private defender program. It's important for every government office. It's important for the bench that we try as best we can to reflect the community. We know this is something we never would have thought about 25 years ago. But what we know is that people in our community, particularly since in San Mateo County, we have a very diverse community. But what we know is that sometimes seeing people who are like them is something that helps develop some confidence. And so we do. We have over uh, the recent years, we have really worked hard going to the law schools, going to the various uh, organizations to try and recruit people as best we can. Have we achieved it? Not where I'd like it to be, but we've made great progress. I talked to you about gender. Uh, when it comes to my staff, I have a total staff. When you throw in my investigators, my victim advocates and uh, support staff, I have a total staff of about 155. Of that number, uh, 36% are Caucasian. We then uh, have 20% are Latina, 15% Asian, 3.4% African-American, and 2% Filipino. Now, as to the county population, the Filipino uh, obviously, we're much. Uh, we have a much higher one, and it's just a matter of doing our best to try and go out and recruit. And we do make those efforts to do so. That's an ongoing effort. It doesn't change. We always want to do that. 
Um, we won't hire somebody simply because of race. That is an insult to them, in my view. But we certainly have qualified uh, candidates, and we strive to be able to do it, as I think all government offices should. So I think those numbers are things that should matter to people. It's the effort that we're making to do it. On my overall staff, out of that 155, uh, two-thirds are women, one-third uh, are male. And again, it's just trying to create the diversity within our community. I also uh, mentioned to you that we do diversity training. I know that was one of the things I was asked to mention. Are we really doing diversity training or are we simply checking boxes? No, it matters to us. It mattered to, uh, to me greatly approximately six, seven years ago that we retained a UCLA professor to come up here and do bias training for my staff uh, on that line. He had us filling out questionnaires and then he came and analyzed them and then came and spoke to us about here is the state of your office. So one thing any good office should always be willing to do, to take a look, see, take advice from others, listen to the community as appropriate, and, and do it. And we did, uh, we did that. We did that back in 2016 or 17, and he uh, came. But we didn't sit on that. And a few years after that, we said, let's get it. We got another person. I don't know why, but it was also a UCLA a professor talking to us on uh, about implicit bias and what we have and what it means and how we have to be conscious and a recognition, something I definitely write. I have implicit bias. I think any human being who says they don't have implicit bias uh, is actually fooling themselves. And, uh, and to that extent, we did training on that. The other areas that we've done uh, training on is um, uh, jury selection and racial bias in, in selecting a jury. And these are aimed at not just lawyers. They're aimed at prosecutors. That's what we want. We've done training. I, I want to list the others that we've done over the course of the last four or five years. Prosecuting hate crimes, why it matters. The Racial Justice Act that we'll talk about later. Uh, primer on making sure we understand that. As I mentioned earlier, the LGBTQ 101, basic terminology, basic feelings taught to us by our County Pride Center. We had training on equity, diversity, and inclusion as it relates to implicit bias and system racism. Excellent, excellent, really educational for my staff. We talked about, again, we had a second lecture on the jury selection and the new law dealing with that and exactly how what the rules are for us to follow on that line. Uh, we had that second training in implicit bias. And um, we had, a again, responding to uh, motions that are alleging that we are in jury selection racially biased. We have coming up um, after the turn of the year, we have a training on dealing with people with disabilities and making sure that we are fair and just in that. So the training is going on. It is there. Um, I think it's well received um, by people. Uh, you know, of course, there are going to people who say, you don't, you know, I don't have any biases. I understand that exists, but these are not optional trainings. Come if you'd like. This is mandatory training, and it matters to us a great deal that uh, we're able to do that. I wanted to mention some of the uh, other areas that we have done general training and what we're trying to do. Um, uh, the example I would give is there's a new law. I was asked to talk about, are we adjusting to the new laws or are we fighting them? I've told every member of my office, all my prosecutors, that once the legislature makes it the law, it's our law and we're going to follow it. We're not going to try and find workarounds. We're not going to try and do charging that will somehow change that in some fashion. That is. Uh, that would be a violation, in my view, of our oath to uphold the law and not to work around it. And to that extent, our legislature has um, passed a couple of years ago a bill that completely, completely changed 
what prosecutors can do during jury selection. And it applies to defense attorneys too, but it was clearly the aim, um, I know because I was involved in Sacramento with it, is to uh, hold prosecutors accountable to ensure that our juries are diverse, that our juries represent the community as best one can, and um, and that and that's important, and that and that matters to us. And we've done we've been involved in multiple trainings, both here locally as well as through our state DAs association on uh, dealing with this law, implementation of the law. And I've seen it happen. I've noticed. I don't have statistics on it, but what I've noticed is that we have um, the use of the number of peremptory challenges. For those who don't know, that's a challenge that each side, defense and DA, has. And we get a certain number of them. Generally, it's 10 in the average case, 20 in a life case, but 10. And you don't have to state a reason when you ask a juror to be excused. They've uh, with, in 16 categories, I think it is, the uh, legislature has said, here are areas where you can't use the challenge. For instance, you cannot use the challenge simply because somebody has a problem with the police, as long as they say they can be fair. That's a, that was a big one, because before, obviously, if somebody says, I don't like police, but I'll be fair, a peremptory challenge may be used. That's no longer the law. It's not permitted. And that's what we've trained our people. There's, there's, again, 16 in that category. And so what have we found? I have found the use of peremptory challenges by prosecutors on an average has gone down on that line. And again, it's, um, it's still it's the law and we follow the law. We train on the law and expect it uh, to always be followed. If at any point I were to learn somebody hadn't, that that wouldn't be good. Let's talk about another thing that we're working on right now. I received a memorandum from the California Attorney General's office just yesterday on it. Our legislature also passed a bill. These are all these are aimed at trying to make sure that the prosecutors are conducting the power they have. I am for one to uh, acknowledge that the power of the district attorney is probably the most powerful component in the criminal justice system, um, outweighing even the court or the defense, my personal view. Hence, it's power that has to be exercised properly. And to that extent, there was a law came in that talked about when we charge cases. Race-blind charging is what every DA's office in the state, whether you're Los Angeles with a thousand lawyers or whether you are Modoc County with two prosecutors, every one of them has to, uh, for the DA, on the January 1st of 2025, has to go to race-blind charging, meaning the police reports have to be scrubbed to eliminate anything that would identify the race uh, of the person and, uh, and, then, and then charge it. And then you go back after that, reinstall uh, the name and see if there's a difference with what goes on. That is what has been done. There were two counties, uh, DA's offices, San Francisco DA under Chase Bodine and the uh, Yolo County with Jeff Rice. They both decided a couple of years ago to be beta testers. They did it in advance and did it for a course of two years each. And both of them have talked to me about it. And what they found in each case was they found uh, no discrepancy. They said that it does not appear there is any. But it was the Yolo County DA who went to the legislature and said, but I think it's a good thing statewide for prosecutors to do that. So the attorney general has to provide by January 1st of uh, 2024, a sort of a framework for prosecutors offices on how to implement this policy, and then for prosecutors to implement it in January 1st of 2025. That's another step that we're embracing. We're going to do it. And it may take more resources, but that's okay. As our, again, our legislature says this is what they want to do, to try and eliminate prosecutor bias in charging, and we will do it. And we, and we will do it. We will keep stats on it, and we will see what occurs. 
You know, we also get down to um, the other areas when one deals with diversity and how prosecutors do cases. And that's another change that we have made. What we know is that uh, in one area in particular, hate crimes and hate crimes are generally aimed at people of color. Uh, in the ones we've dealt with in San Mateo County. And I think statewide one would find that. What we decided to do is we're not just going to let these cases that come in be handled anywhere among the 66 lawyers. I wanted one prosecutor who does that. And I do have that prosecutor who does handles any hate crime that comes in. Uh, interestingly, because I do follow those hate crimes that we've had, most of them are misdemeanor level and they uh, involve people with mental illness. There's a substantial portion of those cases, not all, uh, are going through mental health diversion um, at this point, because that's sort of what's motivating the really horrific conduct that occurred on that line. But we have that. As I mentioned earlier, there's the Racial uh, Justice Act. That is a new uh, matter that says that a, if a player in the system, a prosecutor, you know, a, a police officer, um, engages in conduct that is racially motivated, that the defense can bring a motion to um, uh, actually affect either the charging, uh, set aside the conviction, or change the case while it's pending. We have several of those motions pending now, and that's what motivated us to say, you know what, we need to embrace this law. It is the law, and we need to embrace it and, and adhere to it, and we do. But what we realized is our data. We went to a case management system that gave data in 2015. However, um, Getting the data out is uh, and making sure it's clean is not easy. And so what we have done is we've said that's not something that I could ask my IT team. It's not something I should ask the prosecutor to do. We hired a person who does this uh, to basically they, the phrase they use, I believe, Shin Mi, is scrub the data uh, on that line. That's a process we're paying a, a very high sum of money for it. I think it's over $100,000 to accomplish this end because it's important. It's important both to deal with the motions in court. But to me, more importantly, it's so that we can look at ourselves. What are we doing? What do we find? Do we find in the data that there are signs of where we are um, overtly being racially discriminatory or implicitly? It doesn't matter which. And we want and we want to do that. And so uh, we are aiming in that fashion to do it. Now, there's a big thing when one talks about I've heard several people mention over uh, lots of three years talking about uh, in our county jail, but equally in our uh, across the nation. And that is that the uh, overcharging or over-incarceration of people of color relative to the population. And um, obviously that's something that's gone on nationwide and people are concerned and dealing with it. That's why a lot of these laws are coming through. Uh, why they're doing is to try and make sure we balance that. But when one looks at our San Mateo County Jail, for instance, one needs to keep something in mind that I bet most of you don't know. And that is that uh, to simply look at the 1,000 and approximately 50 people who are in custody in our two jails uh, here in San Mateo County, uh, one could say there's an overpopulation of uh, Latino Americans, whatever one wants to say, higher than that. But one needs to keep in mind is, and I got this number day and a half ago, so it's right up to date. Of those uh, 1,050 people, 50 percent, five zero percent live outside of our county and have come into our county where they have committed the crime on that line, one half of the incarceration. That's a very difficult then because in the county surrounding us, that that may stilt 
the numbers that we have. And that takes some real study. But one can't just simply look, look at the size of our jail, look at the percentage in the community. Um, it really takes an analysis by a statistician. And that's why we've hired a statistician to look at our numbers to see what we're doing. And that that is an ongoing uh, matter. And it really affects the data uh, population. So these are sort of a lot of the uh, higher level things that we're trying to do. I think it addresses some of the questions because uh, we are concerned. We are concerned that a substantial portion of the people that we prosecute are. But there is a difference between us and law enforcement. And I want to emphasize that as a prosecutor, there's a difference. Obviously, uh, almost all, not all, but almost every case that we get is brought to us by law enforcement. We do not make the choices. They may. I can't speak. I'm not speaking for law enforcement today. I'm speaking for the prosecutor's office. And that is we take the cases as they come in. We don't put caps. I don't say that this year I will uh, only allow a uh, 3% of the people we charge to be of Filipino um, uh, Americans on that line. We don't do that. That's wrong. It's not appropriate. We do now collect the data on the race of the individuals that we're uh, prosecuting, because we want to know, we want to be able to deal with uh, the new requirements. But the concept of we're picking and choosing who we do, that's very different. I do know that we are very supportive of the, I think we're at around 10 or 11 specialty courts. And we, my office has been involved, I personally have been involved in the majority of them in the creation of those programs. We wholeheartedly support that as a means of trying to deal with mental health diversion, dealing with mental health court, pathways court. There's a lot of courts, and we support every one of those. And that I have a specialist in it. One of my prosecutors covers several of those courts um, to do that, to try and make it fair. Those are our goals. Do we achieve them? No. Do you change overnight? No. But you do, uh, but you do as you become aware, you acknowledge that there may be things to change. And then you do it right within, within again, that philosophy I started with of what we do as prosecutors. That's the goal. And we will always have special emphasis on our victims because you have to remember of equal importance is our victims of our violent crime. We're predominantly our victims are people of color. That's true statewide. And it's not to be forgotten that all, whether it be victim or defendant, everybody deserves a fair shake in our system. So I want to turn it over to Shinmi Chang now, because as I mentioned earlier, she's in charge of a committee that we set up um, about two and a half, three years ago to uh, try and make sure we took a look at ourselves. So you've heard me talk enough for uh, 25 minutes here. I'd like Shinmi to talk to you for a few minutes. Hi, everybody. So in 2020, Steve formally set up uh, the, the office's equity committee. It's uh, social and racial equity issues. We have about 15 members of the office who volunteer their time on the committee. That's about 10% of the office. And it's a wonderful committee in that it's not just attorneys. It's almost all of the divisions who are represented on that committee. And uh, we do a lot of different things. I will give you some examples. Some projects are very short term um, and discreet. For example, we made sure early on that all of the forms that the office generates are not just in English and in Spanish, but in multiple different languages like simplified Chinese and Tagalog. Um, we also engage in long-term projects like revising our policy and uh, procedures manual through an equity lens. And that was the first time I think in the office that we'd done that. And to give you one example that came out of that revision was we no longer have a dress code that is divided by gender. 
Now we have a unitary code that just calls for professional attire. And that was something that we thought needed to change with the times based on some of the trainings that we've had in this office. Another thing that our committee does is outreach. So to give an example, Cinco de Mayo this year, Steve uh, and I and other members of our office were in East Palo Alto at their Cinco de Mayo festivities, meeting with the public, um, answering questions about human trafficking in particular, because that's a topic of concern in that community, and other outreach activities. And last but not least, we discuss and recommend to Steve topics for training that we would like to offer to the entire office. And the diversity training that Steve mentioned came, it was born out of a recommendation from the equity committee. So those are some of the things that we do, but I would like to say that Steve long before 2020 was already thinking about these issues. Um, as he mentioned, we did some of the trainings long before 2020. And so he's leading by example. Great, thank you. It really does flow. I mean, I remember back in 2011, I had the opportunity. That was when the very first of our uh, evolution of criminal justice started under Governor Jerry Brown. And I had a chance to meet with him with a couple other prosecutors and uh, and talk to him about what was going on. And it was called AB 109 that created a whole new approach. It was, and the goal was, you say, well, what's that got to do with what we're talking about today? It's got a lot to do with it. Because what we were trying to do is say, hey, the people that we're uh, dealing with in criminal justice, how do we treat them differently? What can we do to try and change it? The process that we followed, and I was a part of that in the 80s and 90s when crime was simply beyond belief out of control, was, you know what? Lock them up. Simply lock them up. And the whole goal of AB 109 was to try and change that, to come up with alternatives. And working with our probation department, our chief probation officer today, John Keene, is tremendously supportive of that. I know our sheriff is. I know our county manager, uh, Mike Callagy in the office, are really, really supportive, along with the key players, the private defender program and our judges. So we have all these programs. And the goal was to steer. It works. In my view, what came out of AB 109 yeah, they gave us our county initially it was 14 million. Now we're way higher, which is to provide resources to people to get them into different areas. Uh, you know, do we have enough? Do we have enough in that arena? No. Could we use more treatment programs? Yes. We're big believers in treatment programs. I and I right along there, I think if somebody can benefit from treatment program, I and we can steer them to that. That's better than putting them on a monitor or leaving them in the county jail. However, be candid when it comes to that. I don't want to make it sound like I'm something I'm not. When it comes to crimes where people are being seriously harmed, when I'm talking about when we see somebody who's committed uh, murder, sexual assault, uh, child molest, a uh, knifings on all that, community protection will outweigh at all times. That will always be uh, paramount for me. But in the other arenas for the, I've attended so many graduations of people who have succeeded. I wish we had more treatment programs available, but you know, we have to work with what we have in this county. And I know our health department tries their best to find good treatment alternatives for people. And that is a big factor in terms of our racial uh, mix, in terms of what's happening to people. And that's a goal. Again, we can't force things. People say, well, why aren't you sending everybody to treatment program? And the answer is our judges don't do that. They can't do that. Because to go to a treatment program, the individual has to say, yes, I'm willing to accept that. I'm willing to go there. And there are many who simply don't. Every defense attorney listening to this uh, lecture knows there are times their client says, my choices are I can go into a treatment program where I have to spend 90 days, six months um, going through treatment, or I can take an offer and be out on the street in two weeks. 
unless they're very strong-willed people, um, you know, the, uh, that's not going to be enough of a stick. They'll take the quick out and, and probably be back soon. So we're working hard. Probation department and all our service providers work very hard on trying to accomplish that goal. So let's uh, let's move to questions. We do want to give time. I know we've had some submitted, but um, perhaps we could start. We received a list of questions. We'll look at some of the written questions that were submitted. Uh, one of them was, uh, how do you ensure that a youth sentenced in adult court um, receives uh, required services such as education, drug, and mental behavioral health treatment needed by positive rehabilitation? Again, uh, for us, there's there are two answers to that. Number one, if we had a youth who was um, transferred to adult court who warranted, because of the nature of the crime and the individual, warranted that outcome, we'd be totally supportive of it. In the end, it's up to the uh, man or woman wearing the black robe. It's up to the judge. But no, we'd be very supportive of that. But I need to qualify that because in the course, uh, the times of who we're transferring to adult court has changed dramatically. The law has changed. The presumption is that the uh, juvenile will stay in um, court. And over the course of the recent years, re recent years, the only people that we have sought to transfer to adult court are people, young uh, men, and actually they've all been young men, um, who are charged with the crime of murder. And that's a different category. Anybody who's charged with murder, of court, if a person is convicted of murder, they're not getting uh, treatment here locally. They go to state prison if it's a murder conviction. Um, that wouldn't have been true 20 years ago. 20 years ago, we might have had a juvenile who had committed uh, five robberies and juvenile type robberies, you know, at, after school, taking people's uh, money, that type of thing. Uh, on there, there were times then when somebody had a lot of them and uh, we would seek a, a transfer to adult court. Um, that has that doesn't happen anymore, nor is it going to. We've evolved. We've heard. We listen to the legislature when they put the restrictions on what uh, we ought to do. And so for the individuals in recent years that we have sought transfer, it's been murder. So Steve, some of the questions in the chat, there are a couple about minorities often face various disadvantages, including underfunded public schools, exclusionary housing policies, and racism in hiring practices, which result in oppression and can lead people to engage in criminal conduct. In light of these considerations, doesn't your colorblind approach to prosecution equate to burying your head in the sand to disregard the role you play in maintaining the oppression of minority communities? I think that's a good question. And I understand. Okay. I know what the questioner is asking, and I certainly do understand it. A couple of qualifiers that you need to know when you understand our role in this. And that is um, when we get a case... First of all, you know that idea of charging race uh, blind? That's not a choice for us. Again, that's the legislature and uh, Governor Newsom signed the law. We have to do that. So we need to do that. But I do understand our big concern is that people get treated fairly. But every time a person, again, I'm taking the average time, somebody steals cars, is a car burglary, whatever it may be, property type things. Uh, on those cases there, I think those are all relevant factors. And the, our probation department prepares a uh, memo for the court to decide that. And we consider that. Um, also, what we're doing, uh, the person's background. Defense attorneys today are not simply walking in and saying, here's our defense to the charge. They're coming in and telling us, the men and women of the private defender are telling us, listen, let me tell you about the background of my person. And that is something that a prosecutor 
has to consider and put on the plate. It may not carry the day if we're dealing with, again, if we're dealing with violence and things like that. It may not carry the day, but it's a factor. Okay, maybe this is a person who belongs in a mental health program that we want to do or something of that nature. We don't get to make the final decision. But there is one area I do want to let you know that we do, complying with the law, and that is the consideration of immigration consequences. That is something I have one person, my chief deputy, who um, every review, and we get constantly review where people are saying, could you please, because of this person, they're gonna, they might get deported, would you consider a different one? And here's why. And they'll tell us all the things, whether it's bad things that have happened or the good things that they've done, and this is just a misstep. And we have made decisions where we have given uh, a charge and allowed them to, or dismissed even on occasion, but uh, a different charge so that it's not have immigration consequences. That's consideration of something on that line. Another example is a new law that came into existence just uh, about a year and a half ago, I guess, that allows uh, prosecutors to look at older cases and make a decision. Is this one we want to bring back into the uh, back into the system and ask the judge to resentence? to a lesser time because times have changed. And uh, one of those, just last week, I reviewed one of those with the team. I make the final decision on all of those. I reviewed one with the team and absolutely, we said, you know what? This fellow who was a Latino man, uh, we convicted him and sentenced him for a long sentence um, back a decade ago and times have changed when it comes to gang crimes and things like that. And we have made uh, filed a petition with the court to ask, that he be released at this time, that he has served enough. That's looking to the individual. That's looking to the individual person. It's not putting cookie cutter where it's there. But I do understand the questioner saying the system does have its inherent biases. That's the whole point of what we're talking about today, what throughout California, we're trying to make the change. Again, I hope these steps um, are positive and getting to a different end. But in the end, and remember, sentencing is not done by the DA. It's done by the judge. Hey, we have another one. You mentioned some of the legislation that was designed to ameliorate perceived racial inequities in the criminal justice system, including the police. And there are other laws as well, including limiting gang prosecutions, which have been seen as discriminatory. Um, do you have any comment on the, the gang prosecutions? Uh, yes, because that has been a very big topic. And again, as I said, um, I know some counties, they will not treat any case. L.A. will not, uh, DA's office will never treat any case as a gang case. What we do is we follow what our legislature uh, did. They passed a law, um, 300 or 330 uh, was the law, and, and really limited the cases that one can file gang allegations. I mean, significantly down. And what do we do? We don't fight it. We don't work around it. There are ways one can try and work around it. We're violating the spirit of what our governor and legislature did. And so we follow that. And there are far fewer gang cases in San Mateo County with gang enhancements being charged today than there were before this law passed um, a year and a half ago. So which of those have been the most difficult for you to implement, for your office to implement uh, out of those new cases, new new laws? What do you think, Shinmi? Um, I don't know that we've had much difficulty because, as Steve says, our job is to follow the law. So we make sure that whenever a new legislation passes, we train the entire office so that we can comply as best we can. So I can't think of where we've hit road bumps. We've almost done the opposite of it as a management team. What we've tried to do, one of my prosecutors told me 
uh, last week. He was in a, he's in a very serious murder case and jury selection was ongoing and he described a juror to me and he said, you know, I think this juror may be biased against me, but um, you know what? It Within the law, it, it doesn't fit for me to do it. Now, he could have dreamed up an excuse and he didn't. He said, no, nope, uh, I, I have to follow that law, even though I think this person will be biased against the witnesses I'll do. And he did not use a peremptory challenge. He followed the law. And I gave him such kudos for that. I told him, that's what we do. We follow the law. And I think that's the attitude that, at least in this office, we're trying to adhere to, which is um, some of them may be difficult. I think, to me, the new jury selection law is one that one has to really think through very carefully about, because, again, there's 16 so categories to make sure we're complying with what that law is. So, But in terms of uh, pushback, no, because if, if anybody had said to me, you know, this this is horrible, I don't want to do it and all that, I said, you don't have to, but you don't get to work here under those circumstances. So, Because we are, we are believers and we have to do this. This looks like a hard one. When is it appropriate for the DA to find officers not guilty of murder or violating any other civil rights of a person when the officer has killed unarmed people who were physically moving away or a distance away from being any harm to the officer? You're right. It's a good question. Did you want to say you look like you're real? Okay. You know, the reality is if they're unarmed under a new law, again, this is a law to try and change and get a confidence in our community. They, uh, the law is that in any case where a, an officer kills a, an unarmed person, the DA's office does not investigate it. It's handled completely. It goes to the attorney general's office. And they come down, they've set up teams. This went into effect, actually went into effect last year, I think, 2022. They And we've had uh, one of those in this county, I think, out at the airport, where the attorney general came in, they took the entire investigation over, and um, it was, they handled it. So we won't have any that my office handles that involve an unarmed person. When it is a person who is armed uh, at that point, these are still difficult difficult cases. And I understand there are going to be cases that people disagree with us on. And I respect it. They have to understand what they sometimes don't understand. Is we're not assessing whether or not the officer was right, whether or not he this was good policy, or whether he made the decision. It's very simple. We're very narrow what the DA's office investigates. Was there, did this conduct, did the killing or harming of the individual was that a violation of our California criminal law? In other words, if a person's killed, was that a homicide under the law? That's our analysis using that law. We're, we try to be very open on it for every case that we do where there's an investigation. We, it's a very thorough investigation done. We arrive at whatever conclusion we do. And then, and I make that final decision, and then it's made public. They're available on our website. Um, to be able to read those hundreds of pages of reports, and people can form their own opinion. And I'm glad that there are some people who will do that, because to be critical of us is fine. I respect it. But to be critical without reading, that's a failure. That's that's not good judgment in my book. Read it, form an opinion, and make, make the choice on that line. So um, that's sort of the avenue we go. Uh, and let me candidly tell you that I'm glad in San Mateo County we do not have as many. Any one of these cases is uh, miserable, but I'm glad we do not have as many as the surrounding counties. There's a variety of reasons for that, I imagine, but um, I don't like the cases. 
at one point with this law where I said if a person's unarmed, um, I the bill original bill was maybe the attorney general should take all of them. And my comment to our attorney general, Mr. Bonta, was you're not harming me or my office. You take no pleasure in going through these cases because I feel for um, the person who's been killed and their family. And I've talked to them over the years. And that's a, it's an impossible situation for them. Sad for the officer, their family. It's lousy. Um, there are no Clint Eastwoods and Dirty Harrys in the world anymore. And I just feel um, bad on it. So I don't care for the cases. I'm glad that we seem in our county. I don't want to jinx anything, but we seem in our county to really have um, maybe one every 12 to 18 months. And I wish it were one uh, 12 to 18 years. Okay, Steve. Um... Since you guys say you have to comply with the new laws, at what point, if at any point, do you think that compliance becomes an issue? Like the colorblind instance, it has been shown that looking at things with a colorblind point of view leads to difficulties in recognizing discrimination. That, that's a fair point. Because, you know, once you take the, uh, the race-blind charging, once that goes in, it's, you know, if there is bias, any county in the state, any of the 58 counties by the prosecutor, if it is, it's going to be very hard to ferret out because we've implemented this process uh, on that line. It was like a number of years ago, uh, we went to a double blind um, photo show up system for our detectives when they're showing photos to witnesses for identity of uh, suspects. And we said, it's, you know, we followed this process called double blind there. And um, you know what? If people claim it's still biased, I mean, what the answer the law enforcement would give is, but we're complying with what the law says. So you're right. I think it's a fair comment. It's just, I guess the word is vigilance. We always have to be vigilant. We can't be naive to think that it just can't happen here in San Mateo County. We're, uh, you know, we're poly purebreds and nothing bad can occur. You always keep your head up and available for it. Uh, and not naive. And that's what we try to do. Succeed, that other people can judge that. We we try the best we can. There's been a couple questions about how do we reach out to you for help with the victim? And I know that that information's on the internet, but if you want to say how to find you, I think that'd be great. We have a victim services manager, and you can find her information on the website as well, I think on the internet. Um, and if you can't reach her that way, we have also a public portal. I think it's called DA underscore info at smcgov.org. So you can send in your request that way as well. And our general number, which will then, um, that gets us out to our uh, receptionist, would be 650 363. 4636, 4636 is the last four days. And uh, he can uh, get you uh, to where you have an interest in speaking or how to uh, make that entry, because we do. Every inquiry that comes in, absolutely, we uh, look at it we um, and assess it. And I get many of them are sent directly to me. And um, I always try to review them. And I'm always happy, as people, many people know, I'm happy to meet with groups. I'm always happy to get input from people. I have done so quite a bit on our, there's a juvenile issue that exists um, regarding transfer of juveniles to adult court. And I think I've probably met with five or six groups who've talked to me about their viewpoint on it and why I ought to change mine. I respect it. I listen to it and form an opinion. And it, and it does matter uh, as to what we do. 
And so always willing to, again, the attitude here is you're the boss. The public is the boss. We're a government agency. Our duty is to serve justice. We represent uh, the people of the state of California, and that means everybody in this county, and we'll always be responsive on that line. have another question. In light of the reality that your filings are triggered by law enforcement and understanding inherent bias, how does your office address the focus of law enforcement on certain communities of color, as well as the general cognitive lens of policing, which can lead to bias enforcement and disproportionate prosecution? I think we are doing that by, again, following the laws that have been passed recently to safeguard against implicit bias. Now, we, also the public, may have a little bit of a misconception about this, and that's that we do not tell the officers how to run their departments. They are independent agencies. Yes, we are both part of the executive branch of government, but we do work independently. Um, And as far as another guardrail goes, there is something called RIPA. That's also a relatively new law. Every arrest results in careful demographic documentation that agencies have to report to the Department of Justice. And that's another way for both the government and the uh, the public to police, as it were, for implicit bias in, in any arrests that go on in our communities. That's real, really a good point to be made, is that um, the Department of Justice, which is part of the Attorney General's office, uh, their job is to collect all this information from every police agency in the state of California, and they are to issue a report on what their findings are. And I would look for that. For those of you that have an interest in that, I think the first one is due to come out next year, I think, or is it 2025? I think because the the big agencies in the state have already been complying with RIP, and most of the agencies in our county have been complying with that duty. That means every stop, yet they have the basis of the stop, race of the individual, gender of the individual, et cetera. And that is all going to be put together in a report by the attorney general. That would be, I'm looking forward to reading what they find. Mm-hmm. And I think as uh, interested citizens, I think it would be a great report for you to look for. I think we have... Another question. Should the fact that most county voters vote in favor of propositions ending the death penalty prompt you to consider making a pledge to not pursue the death penalty? Good question. I've um, had that question before. And my answer is as follows. The voters did uh, do so in our county. I, I certainly know that. And that is there. But to make a pledge to say I refuse to enforce a law that's on the books, I then am usurping. I'm leaving the executive branch and I'm going over to the um, over into the legislative uh, function there. And they uh, and that is I don't do that. I can't. I simply do that. I am a uh, constitutional officer of the county employee, but of the state of California as a prosecutor. And my duty is to follow that law. Now, how I implement it, as I said earlier, is up to me. But to make a pledge, that would be like pledging. What other laws would I decide I don't personally like? What if I simply say, you know, I don't like um, I don't like drug laws. I'm going to I'm going to take the position that uh, I'm, we will not prosecute anybody for the dealing of fentanyl or methamphetamine. I think that would be a failure. This is in the same category in my mind. Uh, although I recognize the difference, the voters haven't voted on fentanyl and methamphetamine, but um, the job of a DA is to enforce the laws that California did. So what they needed to do was to go, but they being 
the voters in this county, and I've said many a time, go to your legislator. That whole concept of that, because I have adopted, my philosophy is I will not do a sweeping. Again, as we did with the death penalty, I have not sought or decided to seek the death penalty in any case in my tenure as DA. In San Mateo County, we have only uh, obtained the death penalty in one case since 1994. That's almost 30 years. And that was an East Palo Alto case involving a cop killer. But uh, to sweep with a broad brush, that I think it would be a dereliction of my duty. So I have uh, declined to take that position in, on this issue, but many other issues similar to that, that may fit a certain uh, modality. Okay. We have time for one more question. And I know you had a list of them. Do you want to choose from there? Okay. Well, I think one of them that is sort of on a little different uh, topic was somebody asked, but this is informational. We know that every county has a fentanyl crisis in their community. Why has there been no program for inpatient care when a person is uh, convicted for fentanyl drug addiction in San Mateo County? Um, the laws when it comes to possession, even if they're addicts, but possession are that they're going to be diverted out of the system. And the goal is to get them diverted into treatment programs. There is, uh, I think the program I hear the most often being, being used is our common ground. But as I said earlier, we can't force people to do that. That's not permissible to, they have to agree to do it. They may say, I'd rather do the time and get back to using fentanyl uh, on that line. And, we, uh, and we're concerned because we know, while there, um, in our county, I think last year, there was somewhere in the area of 75 to 85 overdose deaths due to fentanyl. And, and that's, that's horrible. We read about it in San Francisco, but we see it here in our county. The dealers, though, we get very few cases involving dealing of fentanyl. And why would we? You can go up to San Francisco in the Tenderloin and it's pretty simple to make your purchase and you don't worry about getting caught. So uh, that's uh, just one that's a little different than the general topic we have. But if there's another one on there that would be of interest, I'm happy to answer it. Steve, was it one of those or two of those deaths, children in San Carlos of fentanyl? I'm not familiar with a child <laughs> fentanyl sure. yeah. death no, here. No child fentanyl deaths here. No, Santa Clara County just had two in the very recent times, I know, but I don't know of any here in our county. Okay. And and so you said our program is called Common Ground. There's a treatment program called Our Common Ground, and that is the one that I see the most often being used. And it's a residential treatment program. It is and we send oh, we send so many people for that treatment there. And hopefully okay. they never come back. Well, we have reached five o'clock and I want to honor your time, my time, and the attendees' time. So thank you so much for coming on and talking about the state of the DA with the bar and the public. Deborah, thank you. Thank you and your team. We really appreciate the opportunity and I hope we continue to uh, talk. We really, uh, we enjoy conveying our thoughts to the community. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Boomer Bar the podcast that showcases the achievements and contributions of our baby boomer lawyers who are members of the San Mateo County Bar Association. Today, we enjoyed a special edition and our guests were Stephen M. Wagstaff, District Attorney, and Shin Mi Chang, Assistant District Attorney. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review. Thank you so much. <music>